Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of The Ride. This is Nicole. And I'm Michaela. And today we are talking with Dr. Barb Crabb. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the magazine or our website or really any kind of part of Horse and Rider, you know that Barb Crabb is one of our contributing veterinarians. We use her frequently in the magazine and she's been with the magazine for a really long time and we're so thankful for her. Um, expertise because she really is um, a really fascinating person outside of the veterinary stuff but she has so many stories and so much information that is you know the up-and-coming stuff that veterinarians are working on and current you know current practices and in what to look for and um, so all this information is so helpful for us because you know we are very in tune with the horse industry as we own a horses ourselves but um you know, you kind of get a different side from it when you work with a veterinarian. Yeah, and something cool about this episode is, like, not only is she talking about stories and the life of a veterinarian, but she also gives her backstory. So for our readers and audience members who, you know, love Barb and the content that she creates, this gives you some insight into who she is and how she has her background in horses. So, um, kind of going off of that, let's jump into some, we, we don't have a ton of current events to go over right now, but we're going to cover a few things before we jump into that interview. Uh, the first thing that we wanted to kind of talk about was, um, something we're doing for horse and rider on demand for the, for the holiday season. Uh, Michaela came up with this amazing idea to do the 12 days of horse and rider on demand. So, um, do you want to kind of tell everybody what to look forward to and, and how they can participate? Yeah, so it's so much fun. I thought of this idea and I thought that our audience would really love it and enjoy it because it just gives you an opening into Horse and Rider On Demand, which if you aren't familiar with Horse and Rider On Demand, that's our video platform um, with several Western um, horse trainers. So with the 12 days of Horse and Rider On Demand, each day we release a new video for free that you can watch and then you can access all of the previous day's videos as well. And then you can sign up to win a free membership to Horse and Rider On Demand. Each day, we draw a new winner. And um, if you haven't had a chance to check out On Demand, um, I know we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but we have come out with a bunch of new content. Right now, our, our Kelly Altswagger content is going live, and she shows you different workouts that you can do at home. Um, which I mean, we've talked about on this podcast and we've talked with Kelly, how fitness is super important when you're riding, because, you know, not only is your horse an athlete, but you are too. Um, and when winter comes, I know myself, like I, the only place that we have to ride is an outdoor arena. Michaela, I think you're the same way. So when the weather gets really bad and there's snow or it's just super cold out, like I'm stuck out of the saddle. So it's a really great way to stay in shape, even if you can't ride. Yeah, and with the holiday seasons fast approaching and we just passed Thanksgiving, I know that I have eaten the weight of a whole 12-pound turkey, so I really could use some fitness help as I am stuck in the house having zero motivation to go ride since it's getting darker earlier, so Kelly has been my hero through all of this. Yeah, she's great. And um, the workouts are super at home friendly. You don't have to have a lot of, um, you know, training tools or anything. You can do a lot of it just with your body weight um, or just a couple of, you know, small dumbbells that you have laying around. And 
uh, it's really great. So I hope you guys check it out. I know that we've been getting a lot of really great feedback from that. Um, another thing that is going on is Michaela had to go to the NFR for a couple of days. Um, she was able to get out of Texas and get home safe and, um, you know, avoid getting sick, which we're really thankful for. But uh, you got to go to Cowboy Christmas. And of course, we made sure that everybody was following COVID protocols, um, making sure social distancing was happening, wearing masks, um, washing hands, sanitizing. Um, but you were able to work with some of the vendors there to come up with some content that is going out live on our website right now. Yeah, it was super hard. Not because walking around and getting creative ideas is hard, but walking around all of these super cool vendors and not spending every dime that I own was the hardest thing that I've done all year. And 2020 has been filled with a ton of hard things. But all of these vendors have have super unique items at their booths. And so I worked with a lot of them to create different articles and different ideas to share with you guys so that way if you aren't able to attend cowboy christmas you can still shop with these vendors and get all of the super cool items that they have everything from furniture to handbags clothes shoes you name it one of the super cool things that i saw was a bison armchair it was the coolest all there and i'll say it a million times that i saw a ton of super cool things but this lady had a ton of bison hide furniture items and they would all be paired together and look super cool so there's an article coming out I believe tomorrow and it will have those furniture items listed in there and then another fun one that I did was with Yellowstone getting a Beth Dutton inspired look because who isn't in love with Beth Dutton and her fashion right now so that was a lot of fun to get to go around with all of the people and like Nicole said be safe about doing it, but really promote Cowboy Christmas and the shopping experience because it really is the ultimate Western getaway. And I love that um, you are taking the time to find all these websites and pair links with them. So the people who are staying home, like myself, um, I'm doing a lot of Christmas shopping online this year. And I know like some of the Yellowstone stuff that you've put out have um, I've been trying to buy online just because I know people would love them, but I'm just not in a position to travel right now. So uh, yeah, even if, if you are going to, to NFR and you want to check out Cowboy Christmas, Michaela offers some really great um, vendors to check out. But if you're not going to go and you're going to stay home and watch the NFR on TV like I am, uh, you can still enjoy the shopping that comes with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that really wraps most of our current events up, other than the fact that this is our last episode of season two, which is super exciting. We get to take a little bit of a break, enjoy our holidays, and then come back full of new people for season three. And with that, we'll just go ahead and get started on this interview. Welcome back to the Ride Podcast. This episode, we are here with Dr. Barb Crabb, who you all are very familiar with by now, especially if you frequent the print magazine. Barb is a longtime contributor to Horse and Rider, 
And Barb just has a ton of fun and great stories that we just want to share with you guys outside of her knowledgeable equine health. So Barb, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I guess we'll start out with for our maybe new listeners who don't know who you are, maybe aren't familiar with what you do. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So I'm a, I'm a horse vet. <laughs> um, I've been I, in practice for, gosh, 30 plus years now, which seems amazing. Um, I own a three doctor general practice in the Portland, Oregon area. So we're out there with kind of boots on the ground, taking care of horses every day. Uh, my my horse background is more a little different from the horse and rider readership is more um, hunter jumpers and the dressage crowd that's kind of who we work for a little bit more and then my my latest thing just to put this out there is I started last year I started a program in bioethics um, at the Nicewanger Institute for Bioethics at the medical school at Loyola Chicago so that's been kind of a fun adventure. How did you get involved in that? Like what, you know, how, where did, how did that become a thing? Well, it's something I've been kind of threatening to do for a long, long time, actually, just after 30 years in the horse industry, <laughs> you see a lot of things that uh, maybe you'd like to see change a little bit. And really as a veterinarian, we don't get any training or we not much anyway in ethics as a part of our like veterinary school training. It's becoming kind of a huge thing in human medicine. So I just started looking at programs and reached out to the head of the Loyola program. And here I am a year later, halfway into a master's program. So there that's, you go. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm actually from Chicago area, so I'm very familiar with Loyola and it's a great school. Yeah. I've been super impressed. They're really kind of leaders in the whole bioethics thing. So. Awesome. Well, maybe we'll get a little bit more into that later on in the podcast, but let's kind of break down your horse experience first. I know you mentioned that you do a lot of the hunter jumper circuit and, and more of the English world. Did you grow up riding? How, how did you become, like, how did you know that becoming a vet was for ant, for large animals, for horses was something that you were, you know, destined to do? Yeah. So I started out, I did not come from a horsey family. Um, I started out in a suburban California kind of kid's life. And I was just that horse crazy kid. Um, I actually had a friend in fourth grade who took riding lessons and begged my parents to buy me a horse for my entire life, like most of us did. And, uh, my friend and I managed to convince, or she managed to convince me to, I built a sawhorse. Its name was Swifty and I kept it in my backyard <laughs> so that I could groom it and clean its stall and ride it every day and prove to my parents that I could have a horse and take care of it. Um, and, uh, from there, they gave me five riding lessons for Christmas one year, and it just never stopped. So I did the typical 4-H thing and came up through all of that, decided I wanted to be a horse vet when I was really young. And then I actually went kind of different directions for a while. When I went off to college, I interestingly, I changed my major to journalism for a while, thinking I might like to do that. My dad was a broadcaster, so I grew up in that world. Um, and then what I really wanted to do was ride horses. That's all I ever really wanted to do. So I went back East and spent a year as a working student, realized I was either going to have to get lucky or find money somewhere. So I opted to come back home uh, to California and uh, applied to vet school and I got in. So that's why I went. 
Well, the journalism part really plays into it now because now you're kind of getting the best of both worlds, riding for Horse and Rider and still continuing to have hands-on with all of the vet experience. Yeah, no, it was definitely uh, helpful. It's, always, it's kind of interesting to me that I ended up doing as much writing as I have done over the years. Um, it wasn't necessarily a plan. That was a, that was a Jenny Meyer triggered thing. When I graduated from vet school, she immediately hit me up to write a column for her California Horse Review when she was the editor there. So but it's funny that I ended up kind of going back to that. Oh, so you've known Jenny for a long time then. Forever. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, no, she uh, she brought a lot of really great people to the horse and rider universe. So we're so thankful for her connections. Yeah, no, she's amazing. Um, okay, so kind of going, you you kind of did what I think every horse crazy kid did, where they're like, I just want to ride horses for a living. They go do that. I did that too for the Western industry. And the guy who happens to be, he's like a father figure and a mentor. He was like, go use your degree. Don't be a horse trainer. Um, so I kind of came back home and, and got into the journalism stuff and just so happened to fall into the horse industry. But um, did you, when you were graduating vet school and kind of just going into the field, did you have a specific kind of thing that you wanted to focus on or, or was it just kind of general practice or how did you go about kind of figuring that out? Yeah, so I, I took a very different road than what I had originally planned. Um, well, so just quickly, an interesting fun fact about my relationship with Jenny. We actually met not about horses. Um, we met because I was working for the Department of Fish and Game doing wildlife stuff. And I worked with her on an educational program for kids in wildlife. And the horses were just kind of a side thing. So, um, so when I went to vet school, I actually considered doing wildlife medicine. I, I kind of debated between equine practice or wildlife medicine. Um, and I always thought I would be a university person, an academic person. Um, I intended to do a surgery residency. That's where I thought I would end up. I involved in research. I actually did a master's program when I was at Davis in biomechanics. So I was super interested in motion analysis and lameness and obviously the performance horses. So that was what I kind of came out most interested in. Um, and a couple, I mean, I took a different path than that. I met my husband. He was a resident when I was a senior student and he was, so he was finishing his residency and was kind of done with university life. So we made a deal that we'd come to Portland, Oregon. And if one of us hated it after a year, we would leave. Um, and here we are. So I sort of fell into owning a practice. Um, I worked for a practice here locally and then ended up going out on my own and built the practice up from that. Um, with my original focus was wanting to do performance horses and do the lameness stuff. And honestly, if you want to talk about ethics, um, that was a little bit of a tough, it's a, it's a tough industry. And there was a lot going on at that time that I just couldn't stomach. So I shifted away from doing quite so much of that. I did a lot of repro for a long time, did general practice. Um, and honestly, now it's kind of shifting back to where I can, we're doing more diagnostics, less kind of flex and inject kind of stuff in the performance horse world. So I feel more comfortable with it now, but that was definitely a journey for me. Well, so it sounds like you have a pretty broad background in just about every part of the equine veterinary world. So I know that we've 
talked about this before in articles and stuff, but about weird and odd cases of um, visiting with horses. So do you have like a favorite story that you went out to see a horse and it was weird or strange or just a happy ending story that we could share? Oh my gosh. I have so many stories, but I don't know that I can think of one necessarily. I'm sort of famous for being the person who uh, shows up at a barn and starts picking up the lunge whips out of the middle of the arena and telling people the story about the horse that drove the whip into its coffin joint and ended up dead. Or removing the cleaning implements that are stacked next to a stall door um, and telling the story about the horse that impaled itself. A lot of of my stories aren't super happy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... I don't they know. they they might not be happy, but they're definitely like things that we overlook. I know that well with what you just said with the lunge whip. I am so guilty of leaving leaving a lunge whip in the round pen because I'll just be working horses in there and I don't want to carry it back and forth. But oh my gosh, I've never thought about that happening. Yeah, those little plastic fibers. Yep, <laughs> we actually had a horse once that backed into a you know how in the cross ties you'll have your manure fork hanging up against the wall backed into the manure fork and drove one of the tines it gave itself basically a second rectum by driving the tine all the way up under its like how it was probably itching i don't know how it happened but it's just amazing what they come up with my my husband does the suicidal horse imitation you know with the horse trying to figure out how it can get to the nail just to get it into its eye just exactly how it can do the most damage so if they can think of it, they will. Yeah, oh horses gosh. are insane creatures with all of the ways that they try to get hurt and kill themselves. And I'm sure as a vet, you see all of that. I mean, just as horse owners, we're like, wow, our horses are suicidal. But you actually see it all oh, the yeah. time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so kind of going off of those stories, what would you say – and I don't want to like give a number, but like, what is maybe some of your top advice for, for horse owners on things like that, where we don't like, I don't necessarily think about picking up the lunge whip or, or making sure that, you know, there's not a, a pitchfork right next to my horse where he can, you know, impale himself. But um, like from, from your journey as a vet, like what are some of the things that you like to warn horse owners about that, you know, we just don't think about? Yeah, there's so many. I'm, I'm just thinking of another story. There's so many things that people don't think about. Um, I, I, another one that I've seen happen twice and had happy endings, so this is good, um, are people who park horse trailers and put the door down, um, the window down. So the horses have their heads poked out when they're parked out at a horse show getting ready to unload or whatever. I've seen two horses go through those window, 24 by 48 inch windows um, and make it out unbelievably alive but uh one of them ended up getting lodged through the window with its hindquarters stuck in the feeder we had to basically put it under anesthesia and manipulate it out of the window um just you know you just got to think about anything that they can do they're they're so unpredictable and they're prey animals you know they're gonna try to leave if they can so and then sometimes i have people get mad at me when i stop and I tell them you know you should really close your window I've seen that happen twice and they'll be like my horse is fine it'll never do that it will never do that until it does (laughs) but yeah you can never say never especially with horses (laughs) right 
I mean, I think the biggest thing also, I mean, I've had a couple of really serious injuries um, and that's probably even more than what the horses can do to get themselves in trouble. I see people who just don't understand that horses can kill you and, and it doesn't take much, you know, this is a real positive thing, but, <laughs> but you, you, you can't ever kind of let your guard down. And we have incidents that happen all the time when we're out working and we'll have a near miss. That's always kind of a reminder, you know, you're injecting a hawk or something and you almost get kicked, but you don't. And you think, Oh God, I had my face just a little too close that time. Or, and I see people doing things like that all the time where they just think it's not going to happen to them. And then it does. And yeah. Yeah. Or they think well, their one that... horse is just perfect and not ever going to hurt them because they've had them for, right. you know, 10, 12 years and they know the ins and outs of this horse, but there's always, they're a flight and prey animal. So you never know. Yeah. My horse loves me. He'd never hurt me. Well, a couple of weeks ago, my friend who she's a, a fairly accomplished rider, actually, she's been on the podcast and she's a world champion rider. Her husband's a horse trainer and um, she's been showing for, you know, 40 plus years now. And um, but just a couple of weeks ago at a horse show, she w had a horse on the you know, cross ties and was bringing a wheelbarrow over to, you know, pick up the manure that he, you know, he had pooped in the aisle way and he kicked her in the leg and she just, you know, it didn't even phase her because we do these things so much. And so often, you know, you're just going to clean up poop in an aisle way. Like you don't think you're going to get kicked. And she's so lucky that only one of his legs got her because had both of them hit her, like, you know, it, it could have been a lot worse than what it was. Right. Yeah, my one of my worst accidents was uh, a 25-year-old mare who was sedated, um, and uh, <laughs> I was working on an abscess on on her head, and I, I, that's another thing I guess to tell people. She gave me a look that I I can only say it was a look that I should have paid attention to, um, and it was very closely followed by a strike with a shoeless foot that basically filleted my entire leg open from the knee to the fetlock or fetlock <laughs> to the, to the ankle. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, yeah. And put me in the hospital for three days and two surgeries. And, you know, so if a 24 year old sedated quarter horse can do it to you, you just got to be careful. I just have to say, you know, you're a vet when you're describing yourself and you say it's your fetlock. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, well, I know personally myself, like sometimes my horse will be a little naughty or something. And it's just, you know, the personality or they've had experiences that make the vet uncomfortable. And I know a lot of horses feel uncomfortable with needles and such, but it's always one of my biggest fears that my horses misbehave and potentially injure somebody else, especially my beloved vets who take such good care of my horses. So what are some words of wisdom that you could provide our listeners with to maybe work with their horses a little bit more to make your job safer? Yeah, I think it's, that's, that's a really good question because what we hear from people all the time is, oh, they never do that with me, you know, or she's always perfect. Um, the, the reality is that usually owners aren't doing something that the horse really doesn't like. It's kind of like a, a parent with a little kid, you know, they're, they're always, they never act like that. You know, when they ask for the candy, you give it to them. Right. So I think one of the biggest things that people can do is work with their horses on 
accepting sometimes things that they may not appreciate. And so for the horses that are really bad, I'll have people work with actually getting them to accept certain restraint techniques. Like we use a shoulder roll a lot if we have to. Um, teaching your horse to put its head down is one of the best things you can do uh, for all kinds of things because it kind of breaks that resistance cycle that you get into. Um, working with them to pick up their feet and you know hold up their feet. Um, I had a horse recently that I was trying to do a lameness exam and I needed to really block it. I couldn't even hold up its foot to do flexion tests because it was jerking its foot away from me. Um, one of the things I like to teach people about the foot thing in particular, because that's an area that can be really hard, um, is when you're holding up a horse's foot and you go to put it down on the ground, don't let the horse take it away from you and put it on the ground. You have to put it on the ground for the horse. And if you start that with a baby, with the young horses, when you're first working with their feet, hold on to it and actually you lower it to the ground and put it to the ground. That can help out with an awful lot of things. So that's a good one. But mostly, you know, just the horses have to tolerate sometimes things they don't like, just like kids do. Yeah, nobody nobody likes having, you know, needles put in their body or anything, but it is it, it is a really important thing that we need to make sure that horses can can tolerate, you know, so that we can we can do what we can to help them. So going kind of off of your stories and, and advice for owners, you kind of mentioned that you've I guess it's not a really big tie-in, but you kind of mentioned that you are recently going back into the performance horse stuff. Have you noticed a huge difference in the way that we're working with performance horses? I know for myself, and this might be related to something or not, um, when I was showing, you know, 20 years ago, I had this mare who was always very grouchy at the horse shows and couldn't keep weight on. And, you know, everybody was always like, oh, she's just a hard keeper. And, and now looking back now, that I feel like we talk about ulcers, you know, way more than we did 20 years ago. And um, I look back then and I'm like, man, I really wish that I would have treated for her for ulcers because I'm, you know, showing all the characteristics of one that probably had ulcers. Are you noticing any other, and, and maybe you're noticing this with ulcers too, but are you noticing any like differences in the performance industry now that you've come back to it after, you know, stepping away from it for a while? Yeah. And I should probably clarify that. It's not that I've ever stepped away from it. I've been, I've been in, worked in the performance horse world up to my eyeballs for my whole career. More for me, what I have stepped away from is doing things that I don't think are okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I was on the treatment team for WEG and try on and my daughter competed at the medal finals back East and I've done the, you know, regional dressage finals every year. And so I, I am, I'm an FEI vet. I'm definitely have been involved in it. Um, but I think the biggest thing I've noticed, honestly, or the, the biggest thing that, that I think is starting to transition is, and it's partly because technology has improved is diagnosing problems instead of just the whole maintenance thing and the whole just treat you know professional human athletes don't go in and get their knees injected on an annual basis so that, that just doesn't happen they go in and they have an mri done and they have a diagnosis and i think that's the most important shift um, and we're seeing more of that I, honestly to give credit in the younger veterinarians that are coming out um, because they're learning some of that more through their schooling. 
So that's the biggest shift that I'd like to see. And I, yeah, the, I mean, obviously ulcers are becoming a thing because we know about them now and we understand about them now. But and if, so if I were going to use that and make a correlation there, I think the, the difference would be assuming that your horse has ulcers and treating them versus actually making a diagnosis by scoping them and then using appropriate treatment because we know ulcers aren't just a single like there's not just one type of ulcer, right? There are, are two very distinct, different things. And, and we do a ton of gastroscopy at our clinic. That's one of the, we do a lot of referrals and one of the things we look at a lot. Um, and just even the location of where those lesions are in the stomach can change how you might do your management. So being willing to go and get that information as opposed to just making an assumption or, you know, treating them because you think maybe they have them. I think that's, to happen and, and is starting to finally in the last maybe five years. So we've kind of touched on this a few times and I feel like we should probably dive into it deeper, but the ethics aspect of it and what you don't like, because I think talking about, you know, the ethical aspect of it and what's right and wrong is really informative for horse owners because they put a lot of trust in uh, veterinarians, farriers and all of their horse health team. So being able to be a horse owner and understand the right and wrong and what you should do and what's best for your horse is really a big understanding that maybe not all horse owners do understand and are on the same page with. Right. And that, that yeah, that's a huge, I mean, that's like consuming my life at the moment. I just, in fact, recorded, I just did a paper um, for the AAEP on applying some of the the methods that are used in human bioethics to making decisions in equine practice. Um, and on, you, you mentioned owners, and I think that's hugely important um, that owners, so I mean, I could really dive deep into this. I'm not sure <laughs> that you necessarily want that, but if you look at the, the kind of number one principle that guides bioethics in human medicine is autonomy, which is the patient's right to choose. So a, a as, as humans, when we go into the hospital, we have, we have the right to make our own decisions about what we want, right? Um, horses can't do that. They can't make their own choices. So if you, if you do a parallel with human medicine, um, there are human patients who can't make their own choices either, um, like newborns, even ch young children, if you think about older people with dementia. And so that transitions then to a surrogate decision makers. So if we look at, at veterinary practice, all of our patients are dependent on surrogate decision makers. They're all dependent on other people making decisions for them. Um, and then another interesting kind of breaking that down further, when you get into surrogate decision makers, there are two ways that they can make decisions. One, which is preferred is, um, based on, it's called the substituted judgment standard, and it's based on what that patient would have wanted. So when you make a decision for your adult parent or whatever, like to turn the ventilator off, you may not wanna make that decision yourself, but you know that's what your adult parent has stated that they want. So the horses don't even have that option really, because we don't know what they want. So that takes us one more level down um, which is to the best interest standard. So we should be making decisions, the, whoever the surrogate is should be making decisions for the horses based on what's in the horse's best interest. Um, unfortunately, the horse industry is a, you know, it's a billion dollar industry, right? So there's 
there's money that enters the equation. Anytime you, you combine that, you run into ethical stuff. So one of the biggest things I think is that um, we depend an awful lot in the performance source world on trainers to be the surrogate. And owners oftentimes don't even know what's happening with their horses unless they talk to the vet directly or they look at their medication bills on their, you know, on their training bills or medication charges. Um, I think that the number one thing we should look at is that owners are probably the more appropriate surrogates and they should be the ones making decisions for their horses because owners, they, they need to be informed about all of the pros and cons. They need to be informed about the long-term risks of things that they do. And I think we depend too much on trainers and I in practice and, and the trainers, I mean, I, I love my trainers. Like I work with a lot of trainers um, and, and they're great, but um, the owners are the ones who should be responsible for making decisions. I totally agree to that. And you know, so many times have I heard from people that say, well, I didn't even know my horse got injections or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they just get the vet bill a month later. And um, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, different where I've been always extremely involved in my, what my horse is doing and everything, even when I had it in training, but I just, I couldn't fathom not knowing what's going on with my horse when I'm not there, you know, not even just like for the training aspect, but when it comes to, you know, my horse's health. Right. Absolutely. So let me give you a, a here's a good example since, since you mentioned injections, cause obviously that's a huge thing. So you have a horse in a training program that is lame and it, it blocks to a foot, right? And it's supposed to go to a horse show in three weeks. So we all know that if we inject the coffin joint on that horse, it's probably gonna feel better and it's probably gonna make it to the horse show. But what if that horse has some kind of an underlying soft tissue injury? And especially, you know, we deal with a lot of jumpers and it goes in a jump, you inject it, it feels better, it goes, it jumps around. And then you end up with a, you know, potentially career threatening injury right so i feel like if we if the owner knew about that whole thing and and understood that risk they're not going to put pressure on the trainer to to get the horse to the horse show no matter what they're going to hopefully listen to the veterinarian and they're going to make the right choice for the long-term health of the horse absolutely so. well i know personally as well i pay attention to my horses and I don't have a lot of money to go out and buy another horse. So my good horses, I try to do everything that I can and consult my vet, whether my horse, you know, has a tiny thing wrong or something big. I feel like I'm always talking to my vet about what's right and what's wrong with my horse to be able to, pro, you know, keep her at her highest competition level for as long as possible because I can't afford to go out and buy a new horse. So I would rather pay vet bills to keep my horse sound for the long term than going out and replacing her, especially because I love her anyway. So I don't want to just lose her because I also love her. Right. And you guys might be amazed to know how many owners never, I, I've actually, this was a long time ago, but I've actually called an owner once to tell her I had seen her horse at the barn. It had a cellulitis. I called her to explain to her what was going on and what we were going to do to treat it. And she said to me at the end of the conversation, thank you so much for calling me. I've had horses for 15 years and this is the first time I've ever talked to my own veterinarian. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I know I'm always, I mean, my vet and I are like best friends because 
he's also a really great one at wanting to explain things to me so that I understand them, you know, because as you know, a veterinarian is also like a doctor. And when you talk to a doctor, you don't always understand everything that's wrong with yourself. So I care more about my horses than myself anyway. So I want to know what exactly is wrong and maybe break it down in layman's terms for me to understand. And he is willing to take the time to actually talk about it. And I'm sure a lot of vets really are with their clients if the actual owners want to get involved. Right. That's uh, So we as veterinarians, we all need to just be really careful about that. And, you know, after you see a horse at a training barn and you talk to the trainer, call the owner directly. Don't let the trainer be the communicator also because things get lost in translation, I think. Yeah, I think we need to, and not just like the vet horse trainer aspect, but also the the horse trainer, the farrier, the chiropractor, the whatever you're, you know, using for to help with your horse. I think we need to work better as a team and communicate these things because, you know, you can't really progress if you're not working together to, to figure out what's best for the horse. And that includes, you know, working with the owner or working with your farrier, your vet, and just making sure everybody's on the same page and, and can figure out the best, you know, kind of way to horse going where they need to go. Right. Absolutely. Communication. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Huge, that was a huge thing for me is I was really lucky. My my vet and my farrier were really good friends and they happened to be neighbors to the barn that I rode at. So, you know, I was seeing them at Christmas at Thanksgiving, you know, they were coming over after they were done working to check on my horse or whatever. And I was just, I was always so thankful that everybody worked together as a team and there was no, well, don't listen to them or I'm not going to tell them this or, you know, everybody was always really great at communicating. And I, I really, truly think that's what set us up for success. And um, my vet ended up moving to Oregon. You might know him. I don't oh. know. Um, <laughs> he, he loves it out there. So circling back also, you mentioned, you know, that you've, you're an FEI vet and you work for a lot of, um, large events. So do you have a favorite event that you've attended as a veterinarian to, you know, work with? Um, I mean, I, obviously WEG was really fun. <laughs> to be involved in just to be a part of all that was really fun. Um, and I was, I, it, that was an interesting experience for me because I was assigned to the uh, para dressage, which kind of was that, it, that was a unique, different thing to, to be in the middle of. I think it's fun to be just in, in any, I, I don't really have a favorite other than that experience was really great. Um, so that would probably be the answer to that one. Um, I too was at WEG at Tryon and it was definitely something I will never forget um, for many reasons <laughs> with, with the, uh, the hurricane yeah, and um, right. the flooding and <laughs> yes, yes, it was, it was, <laughs> It was very much um, something I will not forget. <laughs> I flew in in the middle of, like, right at the, at the end of the, because I was there for, I think, the second week. I can't remember exactly how it worked out. But on, on my flight on my way there, which I already was like, oh, my, am I even going to make it, right? I we, we actually had to make an emergency landing at some little tiny airport in the middle of nowhere because someone on our flight had a heart attack. And they wheeled. It was 
crazy. It was the craziest whole experience. <laughs> and then you get there and it's like sideways rain and all these people are evacuated to the hotel where I was staying at first. And yeah, it was, yeah, it was quite a, quite an interesting. It was. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was there the first week. So when the hurricane oh. was like on its way and um, I just remember when I was getting ready to leave all of my um, people, everybody that I knew from other magazines and I was actually staying in an Airbnb with a couple of them and they were like, oh, well, my flight got canceled. So I'm going to Atlanta and I'm like looking at my flight in Charlotte and it's still there. And I'm like, well, right. I guess I'm flying out in a hurricane. Yeah, that was the other thing. I landed and you look at the board in the, because I flew into Charlotte also. And, and you look at the board and every single flight is canceled, 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 canceled. Like, oh my gosh. And here I am. Yeah, it was like literally raining sideways. And I was like, uh, yeah. should I be getting on an airplane right now? Like this, this week was already like chaotic enough with like buildings not being finished. Like right. they didn't even have a wall in the media room and then it flooded and like um I mean I'm saying all these negative things but really the world equestrian games was it was a fun experience but there's just a lot of um funny memories that came with it right well and I think I got there and, and all of that and then it got it was lovely I mean it's hot but it was lovely it was very I, humid super fun thing that I got to do while I was there because I've never had any exposure to it at all was I um I got to be involved in some of the combined driving um, and I was just blown away by how amazing all of that was. It was super fun to watch. So you said you were involved. Were you just one of the vets that were assigned to it or how, what, what were you doing yeah. within it? Yeah, basically just assigned to it. I mean, honestly, being the vet on a treatment team, unless you were there, I wasn't there for the whole, um, endurance ride thing. Apparently that was quite like, you know, wartime triage, but mostly what you're doing is sitting there waiting for something to happen that doesn't happen, but you get to connect with a lot of people and talk to vets from all over the place. So. Yes. The endurance one is one I will never forget. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, kind of going off of try on how did you initially get I know you said that you're an FEI vet so obviously you already have a tie-in with all of that but how did you get involved with the World Equestrian Games specifically uh so I actually had had my um my worst accident um which is a, a long story if you guys want to hear that one I had fractured four ribs in April of that year and spent and a collapsed lung and I got bucked off a horse and that that's a whole drama but um, so I had kind of spent the summer uh, very slowly recovering, and I was super disappointed because I had this fantastic course that I was hoping to take to national dressage finals and had all these plans for, of course. So honestly, I just reached, I thought, I'm going to try to do something fun. <laughs> and I just reached out to the people that I knew and said, hey, do you have a, do you, do you need anyone, any volunteers on, because it was all volunteer um, for the, for the WEG crew, and they had a spot opened up, so. That was all it took. There I was. <laughs> wow. Easy. Yeah, yeah, right. Kind of um, lucky, I guess. I probably I, I probably got a little bit lucky with it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they're like, oh, Dr. Bob Crab wants to be on the team. Uh, well, of course. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm definitely one of the little people there. <laughs> yeah. Being a horse vet who rides, though, I'm sure comes with its own challenges because, you know, you get hurt with your own things and then you have the struggles of potentially being hurt on the job, but it also I'm sure gives you 
insight into the day-to-day life other than being a horse vet who doesn't actually ride. They just became a horse vet because they are passionate about equine medicine. Yeah, and being a rider, I think, has really, really helped me a lot in practice. I mean, especially in the in the dressage world, because I really do have an understanding kind of different, I think. Um, it also comes with its challenges. I mean, it's really hard for me to, to because I have, you know, 10 of them that I, well, actually, I have three that I love. Um, so it, it's hard. You can't necessarily always align yourself with one specific person. Um, I'm fortunate in the Portland area that that the trainers are all fairly, they all get along pretty well. Um, so I can navigate that a little bit, but for the most part, I keep my horses at home, which is then a challenge because my practice is at home. So I'm trying to ride and they're coming down. So-and-so has a colic. We need you to go. <laughs> it, it never there, stops. <laughs> no, no time for, for enjoying your horses. You're always on the clock, huh? Yeah. Well, yes, but when it's at your house, yeah, <laughs> it's like I have to go out of town to really not work. Yeah, I know. I uh, felt bad. I've been, I, I barrel race and I've been at a barrel race and I had a horse that was colicking and one of my really good friends is a vet and she lived close and I hated to ask her because she was also competing, but she was able to make her run. And then we hurried back to her house and took care of my horse, but I was so thankful to have a vet who rides to be able to help me with my horse because she was at the event and we were friends and she really took great care of my horse. But I apologize so deeply because it was a Saturday and she just wanted to enjoy her weekend competing, but the job never stops. No, well, I will. And I will tell you that it really depends on who that person is to the people who are apologizing. And um, yeah, I mean, I never mind when I'm at a horse show helping people who are at the horse shows. I mean, those people, most of them have been my clients for 30 years, you know. That's really nice that you have that community too, um, that you, you know, you not only know them through your professional work where you're, you're their vet, but you're also competing at the same horse shows and around the same people and, and involved in the industry, really. Right. Yeah. Being Um, in the industry is huge. So you had mentioned earlier that your husband um, was also practicing medicine when you first met. Is he a, a large animal vet as well? No, he is a small animal internal medicine specialist. So completely different. <laughs> That's probably a good balance though, right? So that yeah. you guys aren't having to work on the same things all the time. Yeah, although he <clears throat> he actually retired um, this spring a little bit early because of COVID. Um, so now he's our, our best farm hand. So he's a little bit more involved in my practice. He recently built a bunch of paddock fences. <laughs> we, we appreciate a handy, handy person yeah. around the, the barn. Yeah. He likes to get outside. He loves his tractor. In fact, when we're done with this today, unless I have to go do something, he's coming up to help us put up an electric fence. <laughs> what a great retirement plan. Just. Yeah helping out and doing all the fun things I'm sure that he's been wanting to do all this time. Oh yeah. I I think he'd rather like travel to Australia for a couple of months, but that's not really in the cards right now. Well, yeah, COVID has definitely thrown everybody for a loop. Kind of speaking of COVID, has that affected your practice at all or how you guys have gone about um, doing things? I mean, I know as a medical professional, you probably understand viruses a little a little yeah. more than, you know, somebody who's not involved in that type of medicine or practice. 
Yeah, no, it's been um, it's been an interesting um, ride, so to speak. Uh, we were actually supposed to be leaving for Mexico like the day that everything sort of hit in March and had to cancel our vacation and stay home. And my my two associates, we all decided at that point because there were a lot of unknowns that and, and I'm very much about doing the right thing. So we actually closed down for the initial like two or three weeks and did just emergency only. Um, and I actually was it at the clinic. So I was at the facility pretty much by myself, um, being receptionist, sometimes veterinarian, sometimes technician, cleaning stalls, um, which served me well. I have a much better understanding for what it's like to be in the office by yourself. It was a pretty weird time. I have a 22-year-old daughter who is graduating from college um, that year, that, last year. So she actually came home, and fortunately, she's a pretty good hand and a pretty good horse girl. Uh, so she started working for us and helped me out a ton. Um, you know, and then we kind of went back to a, really a little bit business as usual. I mean, we all. I'm super crazy about the mask thing. We all are masked in the office. We actually wore masks in our trucks with our techs initially. And now this is really funny. Um, now we have a shower curtain that hangs between the doctor and the tech, uh, just so we are not coughing on each other and we don't have to wear masks all day long. Um, but other than that, I mean, we've taken all the precautions and tried to be super careful, but we're still doing mostly regular practice. And then at Oregon, we just had with this new surge, we just had a, another two week shutdown. So we're having to go back to some of our big barns. We've had a couple places where it's harder to get people to wear the masks when you're outside. And we've just told them we can't come unless they wear a mask. We can't work in the middle of everything. Um, so we're just kind of trying to go along. Yeah, it's definitely been a weird year. Have you guys, I know and it might be different for you, um, you know, in Oregon versus the East Coast where we have, you know, English publications on our, you know, equine network. Um, the Western industry has kind of been business as usual. You know, the world shows are going on currently. Horse shows have been happening. But it sounds like on the East Coast, a lot of stuff was getting canceled, rescheduled, making sure everything was outdoors. Have you noticed that in Oregon? Have you guys been canceling or, or what's been going on in the horse show industry over there? Yeah, the show industry has pretty much shut down. I mean, there's been very little. Um, one of our big show facilities, Devonwood Equestrian Center, they have done nothing this year. They're they're super cautious. They've shut down completely. Um, I mean, our national championships was canceled. We had a weird, I mean, talking about ethics. So then with the fires, there have been sporadic uh, dressage shows. And uh, some one of our barns has traveled like to Idaho and different places to get qualified for regional championships. And then we had, which is in Seattle area. Um, and then we had the forest fires were two weeks before all that. So all the horses had downtime and were breathing the smoke. So some of the one barn we had that was trying to go to regionals uh, opted not to go because of the fires. So that was another thing that came. I know it has, it's pretty much shut down. We have one, two big hunter jumper barns. One is Rich Feller's. Um, they traveled back to um, Michigan to do a series of horse shows there, and they've gone down to California a little bit. But there's been, I think, only two hundred two recognized hunter jumper shows in Oregon that I'm aware of, and no dressage shows. So, so it's definitely a little different than the the Western industry. Um, kind of 
you were talking about the fires a little bit, and we haven't really got into this um, in the podcast. I know we briefly touched on it beforehand because I was telling Barb how appreciative I was for the article that she had just recently come out with on our website because I had never actually been involved in a fire until um, the end of October when Michaela and I had to evacuate a bunch of horses. Um, and can we kind of talk a little bit about wildfires and even just the effects of smoke? Because I had never really had to focus on like the air quality before and make sure that the smoke wasn't bad. And there were days where we were just like, oh my gosh, we can't ride because the air quality is so bad. And then we gave the horses almost two or three weeks off after the, after they evacuated, because, you know, we just, we didn't truly understand the effects that can happen to the horse's lungs because they're stuck breathing it all day. Right. And actually that's been a little bit of a conversation with now I have all my, you know, medical buddies, my human medical buddies, is even what the long-term effects of the smoke will be on humans, right? So yeah, we can wear masks, they can't. Um, Yeah, the wildfires here were crazy. So we evacuated our farm, Um, the practice shut down, five of my employees were on a level three evacuation. I was up at an evacuation facility with 120 horses, Um, and, and we were there for eight days, eight nights before we came back home. Um, yeah, it, it was crazy. Um, mostly what I did during that time was sedate horses to keep them from going bonkers. Um, people were hand walking a little bit to get them out of the stalls, but I think the biggest thing was trying to prevent injuries. Um, you know, when you have, I had, I personally had a yearling that had never been off the property that was in a 10 by 10 stall for eight days. So I doled out a lot of sedation (laughs) to help people. Um, and I don't think we really know what the long-term effects of the smoke are going to be. We opted in our practice and our advice to people was to follow the UC Davis guidelines because clearly they have the most experience with wildfire and smoke exposure. Um, and yeah, most of the horses all got at least two weeks off after the air quality improved up to four to six weeks off if they had underlying respiratory conditions. Um, we did a lot of vitamin E and omega fatty acids and that kind of stuff for helping them. And I think most of them have come through. Okay. We only saw a a handful of pneumonia things happened in the weeks following. I think you probably noticed this as well. If you guys had really bad air quality, but I was coughing and couldn't, you know, you figure if you were coughing and can't breathe, it must be even worse for the horses. So, well, I'm really lucky because I mean, um, I have to drive an hour to get to the barn. So I was actually far enough away from the fires that on my side of town, the air quality wasn't so bad, but you know, Michaela lives right across the street essentially from where I keep, where I ride. And, and, um, she was telling me one night, she's like, it hurts to breathe. My eyes hurt. My sinuses hurt. Like, I just feel like I'm choking. And, um, you know, I'm just sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, like she's indoors where she has like filtered air, you know, and, like these poor horses are just outside. Right. Yeah. I mean, in Portland, you could not get away from it anywhere in the Portland area. And we were out taking care of the horses. So we were out in it for most of the time during the day. Cause I was cleaning stalls, you know, and helping clients out. Um, we were all double masked and yeah, you still had days where you just got home and like, ugh, couldn't breathe. And even that, even keeping it clear inside the house was almost impossible. So we were fortunate. My brother lives right in Portland, not far from where the horses were evacuated, but there was nowhere you could go here to get away from the smoke for about a week. It was awful. Yeah. The the smoke in Colorado was enough that, I mean, I 
spoil my horses and I'm also from the Midwest like Nicole and wildfires aren't something that you deal with so this was my first ever fire near my home and I was uh, scared enough that I went ahead and brought my horses back to Missouri so that way they could have good air quality because my horses like I said earlier I don't have enough money to be able to go out and replace my expensive horses that I love so dearly so I thought it was best to take them where I knew that the air quality was good and they wouldn't have to stand in the smoke for extended periods of time because if I was choking, then I knew that, especially my senior horse, he was probably struggling a little bit. Wow, that's great. Yeah, to be able to take them out of there. We did have one barn that was competing down in Sonoma and when they came home from Sonoma, they just went straight up to like north of Seattle and just avoided coming here altogether for the same reason. It's great to be able to do that. Yeah, I very do, lucky. I do have to say one one positive thing that I found when all of the wildfires were happening, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this too, but here in Colorado, it just seemed like the community really came together. And I've never seen, you know, so the barn that I ride at and where Michaela lives is just right outside of Boulder, Colorado, which is a very, it's probably, you know, it's a lot like Portland. Um, it's not a huge horse uh, town, but at one point there were, you know, four horse trailers at one stop sign. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen that in Boulder, Colorado, where <laughs> your whole road is just covered in horse trailers. And people were driving like straight head on into the fire to go help other people evacuate. And I, I've just never, I, you know, you hear about it a lot and you hear about farming communities coming together when somebody needs help with harvest but like I've never I've never been a part of that and so that was something that really brought a lot of you know comfort to me knowing that the horse industry while we have our faults is still a really really great industry and we come together when we need to absolutely that just gave me chills actually yeah absolutely it's a it yeah it was really heartening to see everybody pull together and try to help out for all of that and yeah, you're right, driving literally head on into the fire to help people try to evacuate. And we had people who evacuated and then re-evacuated. That happened here too. Sea Lazy U, which is a guest ranch in Granby. Um, we've done some stuff with them in the magazine, so I've been there. Um, and they evacuated 200 head oh. and they had evacuated them. And then that East Troublesome fire uh, grew a hundred thousand acres overnight and their evacuation area was now or where they evacuated to was now under mandatory evacuation. So they had to reevacuate 200 head. Wow. So, but again, the community came together and I just like, there were videos of just horse trailers lined up on down the road, just waiting to get into the place to, to load up as many as they could. Right. Yeah. That was the, um, we actually had people frustrated because they had trucks and trailers and were ready to go. And there were so many people out helping, but they didn't have to, but yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about wildfire since it is so relevant right now and maybe not as relevant as it was two months ago or, or three months ago when it felt like the whole Western part of uh, the, um, you know, the United States was on fire, but what are, what are some of the top things I know we talked about in our article and, you know, as always, we recommend everybody go to horse and rider to see some of the content that you have created with us because all of it is so informative and it's so helpful and it's helped me a lot, but what are some of the, the main things that some of the top advice that you would give somebody who is having to evacuate and has never gone through something like that before? Right. I think we touched on that before we started. It was interesting to me. I, I 
Jenny and I did that little blurb for the, the magazine, um, or I guess for the website. What I wanted to say in that after having lived it was so completely different than what you just do when you're doing an article and you haven't actually experienced it. Um, honestly, number one through 10 is to make sure that your horses can all load in a horse trailer at so that you can get them somewhere because people, I think, envision wildfires and they envision all these terribly burned animals and the veterinarians taking care of all these horrible burn injuries. And that really doesn't happen. That was interesting. We had very little of that. Very, that, that really wasn't a thing. The biggest thing was horses getting injured during transport because they couldn't load, they wouldn't get in a trailer. Um, so, and, and I think the other thing we said in that, that article was when people offer help, say yes just say yes like don't try to be a hero um go early that's a huge thing really when you're dealing with horses i mean we left before we were on we were still i think at a level two when we left but we knew that it was growing and i knew i had to get horses out and i had to get all the veterinary stuff out um, and that's unpredictable so don't wait until the last minute because then you're putting not only yourself and your horses at risk but the people who are trying to help you who are as you said driving into the fires but if there's one thing it's make sure all your horses can load in a trailer and know who you're going to call that has enough trailers to get them out of there it's it, it's yeah the the trailering thing i i guess i've just never realized how many issues people have because all of my horses have always been really great you know loaders they were horse show you know they i showed horses so they were constantly in the trailer going you know to and from all over the country but my friend where i ride um she is a trainer and she does a lot of the natural horsemanship but she comes from a performance horse background so she she kind of merges the two together and she was actually, she couldn't even help us evacuate the 48 horses outside of the barn that she, her parents own because she was too busy driving around to all these local barns, helping load all these problem horses that owners couldn't get their horses in trailers. So that's insanely huge to be able to do. Yeah. And a hundred, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and the other one, honestly, this is kind of a funny, so we have young horses here, we, which is always, that's always a challenge, right? You have the yearling that's out in the field growing up, right? You're not doing a whole lot with it yet. Um, the other thing for, for me that I saw are the horses that aren't used to being stalled and how difficult that can be because they go somewhere and they get stuck in a stall. And I, you know, I even had that for myself, um, that a horse just being capable of being in a stall for a day. And we do do that with our babies here. They all come up into the barn, even when they're first weaned, when they're really little, they come up and spend a night once a week or whatever, just so they're kind of used to that whole thing. Because that was the other huge thing, again, at the evacuation facility. I, I ran around every morning with a tray full of sedation. Um, and I'll do a shout out right now, actually, to Zoetis, <laughs> if I could, who donated a ton of sedation that was just of all the things the drug companies could have done to help out, that was huge to be able to just keep the horses from killing themselves and killing their people. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds huge. And I mean, that's something I never would have thought of because I mean, like Nicole said, our horses are loaded all the time. They're stalled all the time going to events. So that's something that some people might not even realize, but it's something that you need to work with with your horse so when an emergency arises whether it's a fire or 
any other form of disaster, it can be handled efficiently and effectively. Right. Yes. 100%. So um, we talked a little bit about earlier about you doing stuff with Loyola University in Chicago. and But I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other new uh, things coming out that you're kind of seeing other vets get excited about or topics that are coming up in, you know, conventions and conferences. What are, what are some of the, the hot topics going on in the veterinarian world? Like what are things that we need to be looking out for or any kind of new discoveries? Oh boy. You know, I, um, I just got my AAEP proceedings book yesterday and I haven't had a chance to look through it because that's always where, you know, I think you get, what the the latest and greatest and what's the newest information um you know obviously regenerative therapies are a huge topic and are going to continue to be a huge topic which i think is is positive honestly it circles back to making a diagnosis when you have issues because then because the regenerative therapies are a little bit selective about what one might be better for than another. So, you know, gone are the days when we just injected a joint with steroids, you know, now we might opt to do, you know, PRP versus, you know, some different kind of thing. So that's a, that's a big one. I think there's a lot going on with the ulcer thing right now. Um, just trying to get a, maybe a little bit of a better handle on the glandular disease. Cause we really don't understand that very well. Um, I did notice there's quite a bit in AAP with Sue Dyson, who's uh, the, the British lameness guru, um, and they're looking at a lot of the ethograms for what signs you can see in a horse that's being ridden or in training that indicate it's in pain versus training issues. I think we're getting better at that. I think trainers and riders are getting better at recognizing that, I mean, horses are are basically really generous animals, and when they start being resistant, it, they're not just being bad. They probably have a reason. So she's doing a lot of work with um, trying to come up with ways that we can recognize that a little bit better. Um, and then there are always all the updates. I mean, Cushing's and insulin resistance continues to be just a huge topic um, because we're all taking you know care of those older horses. <sighs> and I don't know what other really new and exciting things there are because I haven't looked. <laughs> For next year, at least what's coming. <laughs> well, I'm sure that once you have a chance to look over everything, we'll find some really good topics to go over for 2021. Um, you always come up with some amazing ideas and topics for the magazine and, and digitally. And, you know, we're so thankful to have you as a resource because, you know, Michaela and I definitely are involved in the horse industry and we can, you know, think of some, some topics that are close to our heart when it comes to owning horses and, and veterinarian needs. But, um, it's so great having you be able to bring us all these new ideas and just, you know, advances in medical practice and, you know, the things that we're learning year after year. Yeah, it's always fun. To, and I, that's one of the things, actually, that's one of the reasons I enjoy writing and doing that articles is because it kind of forces me to stay current and look at the recent research and, and one of the big things that we're dealing with here, another one to mention, is the impacts of the vitamin E stuff. There, there's some really good research going on with that. And we were involved in a study with Oregon State. Um, I don't know if it's been published yet, um, but just looking at vitamin E levels in horses. So that's another interesting one. We'll see how, how that goes. 
Yeah, it's good to stay on top of things for sure. Yeah, and like Nicole said, we're excited to see what you have come forward with 2021 and what we can put within the magazine. And as always, we're excited to work with you. So thank you so much, Barb, for being able to hop on and join us today and talk about all the things equine medicine. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun. Thank you guys for tuning into the Ride Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Horse and Rider Magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com. If you guys have any questions or comments, please be sure to hit us up at horseandrider at aimmedia.com. We want to hear from you guys. And if you like what you're listening to, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. How many stars, Michaela? Five stars, please.